Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Dave Ansel. Hello, Dave. Hello, and this week, scientists discover a planet wandering through space all on its own. But where did it come from? We take a look at this year's Nobel Prizes, and we dig deep to explain the engineering behind tunnelling. How did early engineers first dig under the Thames? How did they indeed? And another question pertinent this week, our scientific teaser. Can you tell us what's 50 kilometres long, in fact, the longest of its type in the world, First used in 1994, took six years to build and cost nearly £5 billion. If you know the answer, or you would like to get in touch for any other reason with the programme, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can find us via our Facebook page. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. First, let's take a look at what's been making the science headlines this week. Chris, what have you got for us? Well, Dave, a very interesting study which was published this week looks at the subject of multiple sclerosis. Multiple sclerosis is one of the most common degenerative diseases of the nervous system. It's where the immune system attacks something called the myelin sheath, which is almost like the electrical insulation you see around wires, which are around nerve cells in the brain. We don't know why this happens, but the immune system, for some reason, moves into certain parts of the nervous system, destroys the myelin in there, and as a result, nerve fibres short out, they also don't conduct information properly, and this can have deleterious effects on people's vision, on their sensation, and also on their motor function, their ability to move. Now, one way to treat this condition is to give people immunosuppression, which stops the immune system attacking the nervous system, but the problem is this has considerable side effects. Also, it doesn't undo the damage that has already been done. So a group of researchers over in the Scripps Institute, Luke Lairson and his colleagues, have got a paper in Nature this week where they've said, well, we know if you look at people who've had multiple sclerosis for some time that there's evidence between bouts of the disease flaring up, the symptoms often improve a little bit. And if you look in the brain, you can see that there appear to be stem cells in there which can make new myelin to repair some of the damage. The problem is those cells don't seem to do enough to complete the repair. They do a bit, but not the whole job. Is there a way of making those cells be more active and completely repair the job? So they said, let's take some of these stem cells in a dish and we'll add 100,000 different drug chemicals one by one to these cells in the dish and let's see if we can make any of them make more of this myelin because that might be a drug which if given to a patient could trigger the same thing to happen in their brain and get repair happening. 
Were they doing this by hand or did they got some crazy automation system? No, I mean, what you do is you have a dish with a very large number of little wells in it and you have a small number of these cells that are capable of behaving as stem cells to make new myelin-producing cells and you put small amounts of the drug into the well and you look down a microscope to look if you're seeing more of this myelin chemical being made. They got a number of drug hits. The number one thing that worked the best, lo and behold, is a drug called benztropine, which we've been giving for donkey's years to people with Parkinson's disease because it helps them to control their tremors that they get. And they have uh, tracked down that this drug switches on the stem cells, making them make more of the cells that make myelin. And they then go and do some experiments initially in a dish where they take these stem cells, add some of this drug and give them some nerve cells to snuggle up to and the cells make more of this myelin chemical. And then they go into mice, which have got the rodent equivalent of multiple sclerosis. And in these mice, given this drug, they get tremendously better compared with control animals and it's at least as good as the best treatment we've got with immunosuppression at the moment and they then say right okay what about if we give a low dose of immune suppressing drugs and some of this agent what's the outcome then and they get at least as good a result as we can get with the best drugs we have at the moment but without any of the side effects. And I guess uh, you have the advantage that you can actually repair the damage rather than just stop it getting any worse. They're saying that we've got to be cautious because Although this drug is already used in humans and could therefore go into clinical trials, it does have side effects. We also don't know if what works in a mouse will definitely work in a human, so we need to check that, and that's the next step, but it's very encouraging news. Brilliant. Also this week, scientists have reported spotting a lonely planet wandering around in space without a star to orbit. Tamala Masil is an astronomer at Cambridge University. So Tamala, what actually is this planet? So this is a brand new exoplanet which they've discovered. Um, it's a very dark and lonely world. And to date, this is the best confirmed detection of such a rogue planet. Now, you've probably heard a lot of exoplanets in the news of the past few years, but these are all detected with um, a central star, and they actually find them by looking for wobbles in that central star's brightness or position. In this case, it was very much a chance finding. Um, they didn't they weren't looking for it at all, but uh, it turned up in their catalogues, and it's a very cool, very red object, and unlike any kind of star or even dwarf star. They did some follow-up observations, and actually its mass is about six times the mass of Jupiter. So it's a very big gas planet, but definitely planet-sized. Is it just sort of like the Earth, or much bigger? So we don't expect to find any life on it, no. Um, it is a gas planet, but uh, very interesting because it's a very young planet. It's still glowing hot from its initial collapse down, uh, about 12 million years or so, which might sound like a lot, but actually compared to Earth's four and a half billion years old, it's very new. So it's a nice chance to look at something brand new outside our own solar system and say, this is what a planet looks like. Are there any advantages in finding a planet in the middle of nowhere? Is it just an interesting curiosity? Well, a huge advantage, actually, is you don't have that nearby star to blind you with its light. So you can get a direct image of it, see the object itself, and get a lot of uh, better constraints on your data for that. Um, of course, the big question is, where did this planet come from and where is its star? Uh, one possibility is that it uh, was ejected, perhaps on a slingshot mechanism, from a solar system, from some interaction. Um, another possibility, actually, is that it formed directly from the collapse of a cloud of gas and dust, um, and if this is true, it's very similar to a process that how stars form and represents a new way of forming planets that we haven't really thought much about. So definitely should be a benchmark object in many ways. I guess they're going to have to look for a lot more before they can work out which yeah. is which. They're tricky to find, though, unfortunately. Um, they're very cool and dark. But, uh, yeah, hopefully a few more of these will be coming out in the near future. Thank you, Tamala. 
Now, this week, the Nobel Prizes for Medicine, Physics and Chemistry were awarded. But what's the history of the Nobel Prize and how did they actually get started? Well, here's your Nobel quickfire science with Matt Burnett and Simon Bishop. Alfred Nobel was born in 1833. He is best known for inventing dynamite, but his scientific interests were very wide. In fact, he has 355 patents to his name. Despite his influence, Alfred Nobel never went to university or obtained a degree. When he died in 1896, Alfred Nobel's will instructed his wealth to be used to award prizes to people who have conferred the greatest benefit to mankind in medicine, physics, chemistry, literature, and towards fraternity between nations. That's the Peace Prize to you and me. This didn't go down well with his family, who opposed the prize fund. It took five years for the first prize to be awarded. It is often suggested that the prize was founded because Nobel felt guilty about his work on dynamite. In fact, he thought that the power of dynamite might end all wars for good. Today, the prize money varies each year. This year's physics award was £775,000, but for scientists, it is really about the prestige. In 1915, at the tender age of 25, Lawrence Bragg became the youngest winner. He shared the prize in physics with his father, William. Many families of brilliant scientists have won more than one prize. The extended Curie family, including Marie Curie and her children's families, have won four. The oldest winner to date was the Russian economist Leonid Hurwitz. He was 90 when he collected the prize in 2007 and died less than a year later. Only 43 women have been awarded a Nobel Prize, compared to 791 men. Despite the prestige of winning, six people have declined a Nobel Prize. Two rejections were voluntary, the other four were forbidden to accept by the governments of Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. That was Matt Burnett and Simon Bishop. And you can get hold of all our Quickfire Science episodes as their own podcast from our website at nakedscientist.com slash quickfirescience. It's The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Dave Ansell. And now to tell us a bit more about who won the Nobel Prizes for Science this year and what they won them for, we have with us BBC Science reporter James Morgan. Hello, James. Hello. So, James, can we start with the Physics Prize? So what was that about? Well, this was the the big one for the BBC this year. Is Peter Higgs finally going to win the Nobel Prize after all these years? Or are the Nobel Committee notoriously fickle and unpredictable? Are they going to give it to superconductors or exoplanets? And when the announcement went up that the Higgs boson had won, there was a cheer in the BBC office. Uh, Francois Angler and Peter Higgs shared the prize. They were two of of about six scientists in the 60s came up with a theory that explains how fundamental particles in the universe get their mass but it took 50 years almost to to prove that their their idea was right and uh, and it also took the the biggest most most complex machine that's ever been built uh, on earth the large hadron collider in cern i think you had a cup of tea with um, peter higgs didn't you well that's true i did he's i mean he's renowned for being shy isn't he in fact he was he was awol when the award was announced uh, some people said he'd gone hiking to avoid the media attention. Uh, it turned out he was actually in his flat, just not answering the phone. But I've I've been to his flat and uh, I had to write him a, a handwritten letter uh, to, and he invited me around for tea. And he's a lovely man. He's just very shy. 
What about um, my subject, medicine, uh, the Physiology and Medicine Prize? Who got that and what for? Well, that, that's right. That prize was shared between three researchers uh, who discovered the postal service that runs inside cells, which is vesicles, uh, little bubbles of fat which shuttle proteins and other molecules around the cell from the, from the membrane to the nucleus and other organelles. And, and these little ships, they carry really precious cargo, enzymes and hormones and neurotransmitters, uh, which keep the cell running smoothly and, and stop it falling into chaos. What did these people specifically win it for? Uh, was there any one seminal discovery in there or was it just that this is so important to what keeps cells alive and makes them work that it was the fact that, that these people who've, who've worked on this all their time therefore were felt to be just recipients? Well, the three scientists were James Rothman, and he found proteins in the vesicles, which are the docking mechanism, so that the cargo is released in the in the right location in the cell. Very important. Randy Sheckman, who found three of the genes which which regulate the shipping network, working in yeast, and Thomas Zudoff, who who discovered how the vesicles work in the brain, so that the neurotransmitters are released at the right time, and timing is everything in cell development. So. Very important work. And so I don't get in trouble with my wife. What about chemistry? Chemistry, yes. Well, there's a bit of a running joke in the BBC office that uh, we can never predict the, the chemistry award. It's going to be some, someone from Korea who we've, um, who we've never heard of. And sure enough, this year we were completely flummoxed when the committee announced that the winner was multi-scale models for complex chemistry. Um, our headline for a while read, complex chemistry wins Nobel Prize. Duh. But it turns out it's actually it's a really beautiful set of work. It's kind of computer chemistry, the simulation of chemical reactions and these three chemists Michael Levitt, Martin Karplus and Ari Warshaw the committee said these are the guys who took chemistry into cyberspace. That was James Morgan the BBC science correspondent who's been spending a lot of his time looking at the Nobel Prizes this week. Well over to kissing now and uh, Oxford researcher Raphael Vladarsky has been quizzing people about their kissing habits and what it actually means to them. Hello Raphael. Hello how's it going? Very well thank you. Why on earth did you do this? Well, it's a fascinating topic. I think you'll probably agree. Kissing is, is quite interesting, and in, in it's one of those behaviours and courtship rituals that is actually surprisingly common across most of the world's cultures in various different forms. And if we find something usually that, that's this common and, and usually you know, not the most safest thing to do to approach a stranger and exchange microbes and, and so forth. Indeed, so, there's another website has described kissing as a biological biohazard. You're know, putting <laughs> yourself at considerable risk of exposure to exactly. all kinds of microbes and viruses. No, that's exactly right. And if people overcome these fears and manage to do this on such a regular basis, uh, then there usually must be some kind of reason for it. So we tried to figure out if we could find any supporting evidence for, to, to sort of figure out if kissing serves some kind of function in the, in the mating ritual of humans. How did you do this? Presumably not by kissing loads of people. No, no, that would be very complicated. No, we had to go in a very roundabout way, as, as you can imagine, with a sort of sensitive topic. So we had a very large survey of over 900 people from 20 countries that we put out into the wild, asking people about their sort of general attitudes towards kissing and to different partners in short-term, long-term situations and, and so forth. And we also took a lot of information about uh, individual variables, what was obviously their gender, um, how attractive they were, um, other variables to do with their sexual history. And what 
what we did was we looked at these answers and we wanted to see how they correlated with other factors that we know correlate with, uh, with certain behaviors. So what we ended up finding was that individuals that have previously been shown to be extremely selective when it comes to choosing a mate, particularly when it comes to genetic quality, were also individuals that thought kissing was extra important at the beginning stages of a relationship. So in other words, if someone is really fussy, if yeah. they say, oh, I don't just kind of go down the pub and mm-hmm. pick up the first person who uh, sort of winks at me, mm-hmm. uh, then they set greater store by a kiss. Yeah, I mean, this wasn't a self-report thing. We didn't ask people, are you fussy, are you not? I imagine most people would consider they're fussy on some level. What, what we did was we looked at, for example, females have previously been shown again and again to be more fussy. So we just asked them their gender. Uh, we also asked them to rate their own attractiveness. Uh, and past researchers found that even though everyone thinks they're more attractive than average, there's actually people are very good at rating uh, how attractive they are in the whole mating market. So the more attractive you are, sort of the more, uh, the more resources you have to offer and the more a chance you have to be picky. And so obviously can be more selective. So those individuals in the past have been shown to be much more selective when it comes to choosing mates. And also individuals who are interested in short-term relationships who prefer to judge uh, sort of potential partners solely on physical characteristics and sort of good quality genetic rates. All those three individuals were more likely to sort of to say that kissing is really important at early stages. And all three of those types of individuals were also much more likely to say that their attraction had changed to an individual after they had kissed them for the first time. Whereas people who are less fussy said that this wasn't usually the case. So it's kind of a, it's a roundabout way to try and tease out uh, whether, whether kissing might play a role in this stage. We also managed to sort of find support for the idea that kissing is also used as a secondary function in long-term relationships to sort of keep relationships intimate and bonded. What about um, the menstrual cycle? Because mm-hmm. we've seen a number of publications in recent years showing that women's attractiveness to men and men's behaviour towards women and mm-hmm. women's behaviour towards men definitely changes menstrually, specifically yeah. when they're more likely to fall pregnant at exactly. certain times of the month. Exactly. So does the kissing get ranked differently at different times of the month? Exactly. So this was our, so we had two papers. And one first paper was just a sort of analysis of this major survey. And the second paper was a sub-analysis looking at women's menstrual cycles and whether their opinion of kissing changed across the menstrual cycle. And very interestingly, and for us not that surprisingly, but it's kind of a good piece of corroborating evidence, what we found that these women, at the stage of their cycle where they are most likely to fall to conceive or to fall pregnant at that stage they thought kissing was much more important than at other stages of the cycle and again only at the initial stages of a relationship again sort of more corroborating evidence suggesting that these women who are extremely fussy at this phase of their relationship and also very selective in terms of genetic quality of a potential mate at that same time is when they also value kissing the most what do you think you can learn from a kiss that you can't learn just by talking to someone or going out to dinner with them? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, we didn't uh, specifically, obviously, examine this, but I think based on, on what we know about sort of human mating rituals, I think the most likely scenario is that there's a pheromonal uh, cues being exchanged. Ever since the 70s, there's been considerable research showing that human beings are actually quite adept at uh, assessing the genetic quality and genetic compatibility even of mates based sort of on MHC immunocompetence solely based on smell alone. And I think this is probably why kissing is such a, such a great socially accepted way around the world of sort of getting two individuals who otherwise wouldn't have an excuse to get extremely close to each other. It's kind of a socially accepted way for two people to get close enough together to get that little bit of extra information from pheromones that you just won't be able to get by having a chat over a bar or sort of winking over, over the end of the village sort of thing. Do you have to do the full-on television kiss, as my kids <laughs> would dub it, in order to get that information? No, no, or does the... The, the classic air kiss also 
Yeah, right. no, I don't think you really do. I mean, when I talk about sort of kissing, I talk about the most generalized form of kissing, which really doesn't always necessarily involve sort of full mouth and tongue contact. That's a relatively recent invention. But in, in many cultures, the most common form of kissing involves some kind of very close physical proximity. And most interestingly, and the sort of thing that, that leads me to believe that pheromones are involved, a lot of these cultures involve sniffing and inhaling. Like what we think of as the Eskimo kiss, which isn't really rubbing noses, the, the actual custom involves placing your nose on someone's cheek or their forehead forehead and inhaling deeply and that is that is a sort of the greeting that that's involved between romantic partners Raphael, we must leave it there but thank you for joining us Raphael vladarsky from oxford university he's published that work this week in the archives of sexual behavior and also in the journal human nature now something else i spotted this week was some really very very rapid climate change about 55 million years ago back then the climate was very different it started off about eight degrees celsius warmer than it is now there were things like crocodiles living off greenland and palm forests in wyoming and all of a sudden the carbon dioxide level seems to have doubled and the climate got about another five degrees warmer because our climate records that far back are not very precise scientists thought that this could have gone on over thousands if not tens of thousands of years but morgan challer and james wright have been studying clays off the shores of maryland and in this region of time they discovered very very rapidly depositing clays and there was a repeating pattern in the clay which they could prove was a yearly pattern so it's a bit like tree rings and they started looking at this clay and they looked at different isotopes of carbon. There's carbon-12, which is more easily taken up by plants. There's extra of it in organic material. And carbon-13, which is more common in inorganic carbon sources. And they saw this a huge injection of carbon into the atmosphere, about 3,000 billion tonnes of it over a period of just a few months. And then over the next 13 years, this seems to have dissolved in the shallow oceans and caused it to become really quite a acidic and then other people have hypothesized that this has caused a huge mass extinction killing off a large portion of especially the deep ocean creatures far more than killed off in the impact which killed off the dinosaurs and then it took 150,000 years for the climate to kind of get over this and get back to normal what do we think caused that catastrophic release of co2 it could be something to do with a giant volcanic eruption or it could be a large sort of meteorite impact. It's the best model scientists have historically of the experiment we're doing on the climate now, pumping in large amounts of carbon dioxide, which um, weren't there before, and seeing what's happened. And this is about 100 years worth of carbon all being injected at once, but the results were really quite scary. So it suggests that we could be cruising for a carbon bruising then if we're not careful? Not quite as extreme as this, but certainly it'll take a very, very long time to fix it. It's a worrying thought, isn't it? Thank you, Dave. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Dave Ansell. If you'd like to find out any more about the news items we've just been discussing, the transcripts and the references for all of them are on our website at nakedscientist.com slash news. Well, moving on now to our main topic for the week. We're digging deep to explain the engineering behind tunnelling. Today we might be used to engineering feats like the Channel Tunnel, but in the 1800s a father and son team of engineers, Mark Isabard Brunel and Isabard Kingdom Brunel, built the first ever tunnel to be dug under a navigable river. Ginny Smith headed down to the Brunel Museum in Rotherhive, London, to meet director Robert Hulse to hear how the tunnel first got constructed. The tunnel here is the first tunnel under a river anywhere in the world. It's also now the oldest tunnel in the oldest underground system in the world. So this is a very important site. Before Brunel, the way they dug tunnels was they dug trenches. They put the railway in the trench, 
and they covered it over. But you can't do that under a river. What Brunel is doing here for the first time anywhere in the world is he's digging a tunnel by burrowing a hole like an animal. And the modern tunnel boring machines are just automated developments of the human tunnel boring machine that Brunel used here. So how exactly do you go about doing something like that? There's a model of it here. The first thing is you have to get to the depth you want to dig. And this is a caisson. It's a brick-lined shaft, but it's actually a tower that was sunk. They lowered into this hole a huge cage made up of 36 little cages. Each little cage is the size of a man. And in front of each man, you see in the cage, there are wooden planks, and they're held in place by metal poles. So they take out the first two poles, they take out the plank, they dig to four inches, replace the plank, extend the poles four inches, brace them against the cage, and take out the one below. Dig to four inches, replace the plank, extend the poles, take out the one below. And when they've done the whole of the wall in front of them, and the man above and below has done the same, then those three in a row, moving independently, are pushed forwards, and as they push the cages forwards, bricklayers working behind the miners build the tunnel walls. And what happened to all the earth that they were digging out? The clay would be baked into bricks and sent back down again to line the tunnel. So that's actually quite a green piece of engineering. So what other kind of challenges would the people working down here be facing? As they work in these cages, they're showered with Thames water, which wouldn't be pleasant today, but in 1825, the Thames is the biggest open sewer in the world. So they're being doused all day with effluent, and they're not just dodging sewage either. They're digging through what was recently marsh, and when you get marsh, you get marsh gas or methane. The miners don't work in the dark, that would be unreasonable. They each have an oil lamp, which, of course, ignites the methane. So there are flames as well as sewage shooting from the cages where these poor men are working. It is the worst job in the world. But if I tell you, they're running more than a police inspector. This is very well-paid work. And are these tunnels still in use today? Yes, they are. They're now part of the London Overground. This tunnel is 170 years old. It didn't open for trains. It opened for a variety of rather bizarre and extraordinary customers and visitors. So if it wasn't used as a railway, why was it built? It was built to move cargo by horse and cart, but they ran out of money and they couldn't afford to build the ramps to get the horses and the carts down into the tunnel to try and make extra money in the archways between the north and the southbound tunnel. They built shops. So this is the world's first underwater shopping arcade. In 1852, they launched the world's first underwater fairground. Sword swallowers, fire eaters, magicians, tightrope walkers. So it became a, a tourist destination. People would go just for the sake of going rather than because they needed to get from A to B. Oh, absolutely. If you came to London in the 1840s and you had just three things on your list, this would be one of them. People came here in their millions because they didn't believe it could be done. Because in, in 1843, walking under a river the size of the Thames is like walking on the moon. So if our listeners wanted to go and see any of Brunel's tunnel, is any of it still visible? Yes, it is. You can travel through the tunnel itself on the trains on the London Overground. And the trick is to get off 
at Wapping and wait at the end of the platform, then the next train that comes in will light up the arches where the shops used to be. And also, there is an underground chamber. That caisson still exists. Here in Rotherhithe, the caisson is empty, and we're now fundraising to fit it out as a concert hall. Brilliant. So can you take me down to see that? I can. We're going out of the museum and round a corner... And now we're at a tiny door that, even for me, looks too small. <laughs> yes, the hobbit hole. Follow me. We're bending almost double and crawling through a tiny little passageway, but it's not too long, which is good. And there's some rather rickety-looking stairs, which I'm now going to attempt to climb down without dropping my recording equipment. Oh, wow, so I've just come round a corner and you can really see the cavern opening out. Uh, here's a picture of the tunnels as it was in 1843. It's very grand, as you see. Well, so they've got a beautiful sweeping double staircase, which is a little bit different from the one we came down. What happened to that? Well, you see the line of it there. Oh, yeah. So why isn't that here anymore? When they started running trains through here, they they took out the wooden staircase because the steam trains is going to be fire and smoke and tinder. So it must have been quite a big feat to have dug a tunnel under such a big river as the Thames. Did anything go wrong? Everything that could go wrong went wrong. The Brunels thought it would take three years to get to Wapping, but it took 18. The tunnel flooded five times altogether, and the first flood was in May 1827. So you said that was the first flood. It happened again? Yes, it did. Work began again, but... Twelve weeks later, there was another terrible flood, and this time six men died. Did the water get this far? Uh, Yes, the water broke in and came roaring down the tunnels and filled this chamber, and six men drowned in here. One man, as luck would have it, was rescued and taken out, as near as we can make it, through the little entrance that you came through, revived and sent to Bristol to convalesce, where he designed a bridge built a railway, built a steamship, built another steamship. This is the near-death experience of our most famous engineer, Isambard King of Brunel. So when they were saying about how they actually do that digging, they had this giant cage, like a climbing frame, with men at various points in these cages within this giant climbing frame, the back wall of which was planks up against the, the mud they were digging into. They'd take out a plank, dig four inches in, and then put the plank back in four inches further in. And they keep doing that all the way through their cage, and every man in his own cage does that, and then the whole thing slides forward. Yeah, because the mud and the clay which they're digging through is kind of sloppy, and will kind of, and if you just leave it, it will kind of slump. They can't leave it there for very long, so they had to support it again with the planks very, very quickly. Then you move the whole cage forward into that gap, and then very quickly you brick up the gap. Gosh, I'm glad I didn't do that job. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Dave Ansell. We're talking tunnelling this week and the engineering behind it. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme for any reason, with any thoughts, comments, questions or feedback, our email address, chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can look us up on Twitter, at Naked Scientists, or you can find us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. In a moment, the archaeology that inevitably turns up when big tunnels and their infrastructure get dug under big cities. Indeed, what sorts of things are turning up under London? 
The Brunels relied on people who were willing to dig with sewage falling on their heads, which I imagine the Health and Safety Department would have something to say about today. No, we can't get away with that. But to find out how tunnelling has moved on into the modern era, Ginny, having been down Brunel's tunnel, hopped two stops down the current London underground to Canary Wharf and one of the overground sites for Crossrail, which is digging a 26-mile-long tunnel under London from the western to the eastern suburbs. She met up with a deputy construction manager for Crossrail, Will Jobling. So today you've brought me to a construction site at Canary Wharf. So what exactly is going on here? Canary Wharf Station is one of the main stations on the Crossrail line, which runs east to west across London, connecting Heathrow Airport and commuter areas to the west of London with the central business districts of London and out into the Essex commuter areas to the east of London. Six storeys down below the docks of Canary Wharf, the station is well underway, and earlier this year two of our tunnel boring machines, Elizabeth and Victoria, passed through the station on their way into the centre of London. I like that you've named your tunnel boring machines. Are they all female? By tradition, tunnel boring machines are always named after ladies and they're generally named in pairs as well. So uh, Victoria and Elizabeth named after two monarchs. Two of the other tunnel boring machines that we have, which are starting from near the Olympic Stadium at Stratford, are named Jessica and Ellie after Jessica Ennis and Ellie Simmons, two of the Olympic heroes. Oh, brilliant. So can you tell me a little bit about how these machines actually work? The essence of a tunnel boring machine is the same as, as tunnelling has always been carried out since Brunel's time. There is a metal shield at the front of the machine which has a circular rotating cutter head on it. That cutter head swings round and moves forward at a rate of about 20 millimetres a minute. It scrapes off the surface in front of the machine. Then a giant Archimedes screw from the bottom of the machine takes the material out onto a conveyor belt it then passes all the way back through the machine, along the tunnel, and out to the surface. On the eastern tunnels, it then drops straight into a barge, is taken out down the River Thames, and ends up in a new bird sanctuary that's being built off the coast of Suffolk. So you mentioned an Archimedes screw. How exactly does that work? Essentially, it, it turns round and the material that's being scraped off the face of the tunnel falls to the bottom and is picked up and essentially sucked back out from the front of the machine. It allows the pressure at the front of the machine to be maintained. So you've got this machine and it's boring into the earth. What happens behind the machine? What turns a hole in the ground into something we could actually put trains through? Well, once the front of the machine has pushed forward 1.6 metres, there is essentially a gap created inside the metal shield. What we then do is we take the seven segments and keystone of each tunnel ring and place them into position using a massive hydraulic erector arm. So is that made of bricks? or No, the rings are made of concrete segments, which are 1.6 metres across, about 30 centimetres in thickness, and they're made using a reinforced concrete with steel fibres actually mixed in with the concrete to give it strength. How do you stop it from falling in on itself when you've dug a bit of the tunnel out? There's two different ways of doing it, and it depends on what type of machine you have, which in turn depends on what the ground conditions are that you're going through. Most of London is built on clay. In London clay, the earth has a certain amount of stickiness, shall we say. So as you're scraping it off, the front of the machine, where the ground is unsupported, if you just left it there, it would just slide in and fall in on you. So what we do is we keep pressure at the front of the machine. That's done in part by having compressed air in there, partly by having some water in there, just to force the earth back from falling in. 
We also regulate it by the speed by which the Archimedes screw turns so that what we're pumping in to hold the face up is equivalent to what we're taking out by the screw. The crossrail machines that are tunnelling under the Thames are slightly different. They're slurry machines, and that's because underneath the Thames is mostly chalk. What they do there is they have a slurry machine where the full face is actually sealed watertight and the chalk is basically dissolved in a slurry as it's scraped off and comes out through pipes rather than the conveyor belts which we use on a clay machine. How quickly can these things get through the earth? At best, we can do in the region of 200 to 250 metres in a week. On average, we like to go between 100 and 150 metres in a week. So that's about the same as one and a half football pitches. So there's an awful lot going on underneath London. I mean, we've got sewer systems, we've got the current tube lines, and there must be loads of other things that I'm not even aware of. How do you make sure you avoid all of those when you're digging? Well, it's all been planned and mapped out to very high levels of precision. For example, the Western Tunnels recently went within 80 centimetres of the operational northern line near Tottenham Court Road. That's about the length of a hockey stick. And to be able to do that, you have to have a great confidence in where you are. That's not to say that there aren't surprises down underneath London. There's plenty of things we do know about. There's plenty of things that we don't. And recently we, we hit some, some piles under the Canary Wharf docks, which nobody knew were there. That was Will Jobling from Crossrail talking to Ginny Smith. 250 metres a week of tunnel. That's phenomenal, isn't it? Awful lot of pickwork. Those machines weigh a 1,000 tonnes each one. They're just enormous. Just incredible to think of that thing burrowing its way under London. I mean, the really scary thing is getting rid of all the material. Actually digging away that much you could do with a digger quite easily, but then shifting all that material kilometres out the back. Is... Well, now we know it's going to a bird reserve in Suffolk. Now, we'll describe the huge boring machines that they've got digging holes under London for Crossrail at the moment, but what about tunnel building in general? What's actually involved? My name is Rodney Craig. I worked for Sir William Halcrow and Partners Consulting Engineers for 38 years, all in tunnels. I arrived on day one and put in a tunnel, and I left on my last day sitting in a tunnel. Is there anything that you can't tunnel through? We're much improved compared with um, 100 or 50 years ago. The reason that in London... All the underground is north of the Thames is because north of the Thames there is London clay, and which is a good medium for driving tunnels. And south of the, of the Thames, it is predominantly in water-bearing ground. And in the 1900s and up to probably the 1960s or 70s, it was quite difficult to build tunnels under the water table because you had to put compressed air on to hold back the water and of course you have to compress up to your air pressure and then decompress afterwards. So in other words, you would only have four hours working because the two hours beforehand and two hours afterwards were compression and decompression. But now we have tunnel boring machines which can excavate in that type of ground and therefore there isn't a problem. So you would just deploy the machine and it's unmanned in the sense there's no one actually physically down there at the digging face, and mm. it's all automated. Basically, there are now two types of tunnel boring machines which you can use. One is called the hydro machine, and the other is called an earth pressure balance machine. They have different principles, but they're both pressurised the face, so you hold back the water and you hold back the ground. The largest tunnel boring machine 
which has just completed work in um, Italy, is 15.5 metres or 15.66 metres in diameter. Gosh, that's a lot of rock, isn't it? I mean, how much material are they moving an hour, those sorts of machines? They were going along at quite a high rate of progress. They were probably doing up to 10 metres per day. What about when we want to build tunnels in places where there are geological issues? And Japan are masters at this. They've got a geological hotspot there. They've got lots of earthquakes happening regularly. How do you build tunnels that are capable of taking that sort of problem? Because concrete's really good in compression, but as soon as you put stress on it, it fails catastrophically. How do they get around that? Generally, the safest place to be in an earthquake is inside a tunnel, because basically your tunnel moves with the rock and there isn't really a problem as far as the tunnel itself is concerned. Probably the worst conditions is probably not in Japan, but if you are building a tunnel in sand under the water table, you do find that the sand can liquefy. It loses all its strength. What about navigating? Because if one looks at what was achieved historically by engineers like Bazalgette, the guy who plumbed in the London sewers, they dug from two different directions and were they out by... You know, it was a matter of a centimetre or two, wasn't it? That these two uh, tunnels I mean, coming over enormous distances and they met in the middle. How did they do it? Well, basically, you start off from a shaft and you have two plumb bobs, which are strings with a piece of metal at the bottom, which you put on the inside of the shaft, at the back and the front, on the actual alignment that you wish to drive your tunnel out. And then you extend that line by resurveying time and time and time again, you um, lose, lose all the errors and um, you arrive at the end within your one inch from your predicted position. <laughs> what happens if you want to go around corners? Well, then you have to survey what angle you're doing and so forth, and it all comes in the calculation. But ideally, with a tunnel, you try to avoid having vertical and horizontal curves at, at the same time because that then does become more difficult. And what about if, like up in Manchester, there's a very long canal to get, historically, products onto canals under a mountain so that the horses uh, didn't have to carry stuff over a mountain, over the Pennines, and it took them a huge amount of time to build, but they then ended up with the water flowing through it beautifully. How do you get the water flowing through them too so that you don't end up accidentally going uphill or downhill by the wrong amount? Well, as long as you go horizontally, you will always be able to get the water flowing, shall we say. And there was a case um, that, that I visited a tunnel in Israel, which was built in the 9th century BC, where they had their wells outside the city. They drove it from both ends, and um, they got their levels wrong, and there was a five-foot difference between one tunnel and the other when they met and so they had to excavate down for another five feet to actually get the horizontal. Very thirsty people in that village. That was Rodney Craig, who's a tunnel engineer and a journalist, and one of the things he mentioned, that liquefaction, sand turning to water and therefore causing problems for your tunnel. Dave has an experiment for us later in the show to demonstrate this very elegantly, so we'll be returning to that then. This is The Naked Scientist, Dave Ansell and Chris Smith here with you talking tunnelling this week. In a moment, how we can make sure tunnelling under cities doesn't destroy our heritage. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, our email address, chris at thenakedscientist.com. You 
can look us up on Twitter at Naked Scientists or you can find us on our Facebook page. Nowadays we have the technology to build massive tunnelling projects but the ground beneath our feet also contains the archaeological record of our cities and so what might we be destroying by digging through our history? Craig Halsey is an archaeological project manager from the Museum of London Archaeology and is involved in preserving and studying finds from tunnelling projects like this. Hi Craig, having listened to the descriptions of these tunnel boring machines, is there any archaeology left when it comes out the other side? Uh, well, absolutely there is, um, because as has been mentioned, they're tunnelling through um, London clay. London clay is about 60 million years old. Um, it dates to the Eocene period, so it doesn't actually have uh, any archaeological interest to us. Um, uh, where the impacts, uh, the tunnels do actually impact on it, it's things like the actual uh, the stations or the shafts that they need to dig to actually get the tunnel boring machines in. So it's not the tunnels themselves, it's all the other associated infrastructure that needs to be done to make that development work, basically. So what sort of things do you find in these places? Uh, well, it really depends on uh, where you're actually excavating. Uh, most of the work that I've been involved with uh, has been it's been mentioned actually um, out near the Docklands, out near Canary Wharf, parts of Crossrail. And um, beneath the, the present landscape there, you've got a very thick sequence of uh, alluvial and peat deposits, which date back about 10,000 years, what we call the Holocene. And uh, there's various sort of paleo-environmental proxy indicators, as we call them, so things like pollen, uh, that can tell you about the, the past paleoecology and also how people have had an impact, the way that forests have been cut down and so forth. Uh, and there's other um, environmental indicators, such as uh, diatoms and ostracods. And diatoms are like a silica algae. Ostracods are bivalves. And we can use these to actually look at things like uh, sea level change, changes in the actual river. So uh, although it's not necessarily associated with, with actual uh, occupation, uh, it can set the background um, for within which uh, Bronze Age populations used to, used to exist. And you can look at settlement patterns and things like that as well. Um, occasionally, you do get archaeology uh, with these deep sediments. You can get things like mesolithic scatters on the surface of the uh, gravels or uh, if you're particularly lucky you can get things like uh, timber timber trackways so that's the sort of work that I've mainly been involved with but uh, many of my colleagues have, have worked more in central London where the deposits are a little bit shallower uh, they have found um, you know, Roman burial grounds post-medieval burial grounds uh, the remains of Roman buildings and medieval buildings so it really does just depend on where you are and where you're digging the holes. Are there any challenges with um, doing archaeology in the kind of environment of people building tunnels around you? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, it's a question of they're under quite difficult time constraints. So um, the last thing they really want is a huge amount of archaeology uh, to deal with. But uh, all these things can can be programmed. We make an assessment of the site way before the works actually start. And um, one of the things we'll do, we'll do um, a desk-based study. So we'll look at what archaeology has been found uh, around a particular development site. Uh, we can look at historic maps. So we, we've generally got a good idea about what might be there. And also we'll do some evaluation work as well. So that could be uh, test pits or um, boreholes and just to get an idea about what's there before they actually start digging the hole. So really we're there to try and sort of minimise their risk. So the last thing they want is when they start to undertake these works, you know, they find something completely unexpected that slows the whole process down. That's uh, what we try to avoid. Is it at all scary digging um, in these really deep holes as well? Does that cause you any problems? What's different about this type of work and working with tunnels is that it actually gives us an opportunity to look at sediments uh, that we wouldn't normally get access to um, because some of these shafts can be quite deep. 
Um, and if we were dealing with them in more sort of traditional methods, just using trenches, there's lots of problems you have. Uh, water ingress is the main one. But when they put in these shafts, I think it was mentioned, these, these concrete caissons, they normally dewater the site. So it actually enables us to get to these deposits, which we wouldn't normally be able to look at. So in some ways, it's a benefit. We can get more information from it than we would normally expect. Brilliant. So we get to understand how London used to be. Thank you very much, Craig Halsey, who's from the Museum of London Archaeology. One of the things that was mentioned earlier in the programme was what happens when you build a tunnel through certain types of ground and there's a lot of sand there. And what Rodney Craig said was that it can liquefy the sand, goes from being a solid to something which is akin to being a liquid. And Dave's brought his own demonstration of this. What I've got here is my own very little sand pit. I have a box full of sand. You can kind of push it around a bit, but mostly it's fairly solid and you can kind of put things on it and they don't tend to sink very far. You can build a building on it and it's fairly stable. The problem comes if that sand starts to get shaken. So if you're in an earthquake, because at the moment the sand isn't moving because all the little hard particles are jamming against one another and so the friction holds it all together and you have a nice solid foundation. The problem is if you shake it, the sand particles sort of bounce around a bit and as soon as they start bouncing around a bit, they can start bouncing past each other. So I will start trying to shake my sand pit. So, so Dave has his little mini sand pit and you have a very large bolt standing up to resemble a skyscraper kind of building, or a heavy yeah. building and then secreted in the sand is a light object. You haven't told me what it is, but there's something hiding in there. I'm going to give it a shake. So I'll give it a shake. Ah, okay, so the result is pretty clear. What has popped up, which was previously invisible under the sand, is a ping-pong ball. That's very light, obviously, and then the very heavy metal bolt has completely disappeared. So the sand has started to shake around, the particles have moved past each other, and they can flow, so it starts behaving like a liquid, so anything denser than the sand will sink. Anything less dense than the sand will float, because, of course, a tunnel is full of air, so it's basically a great big submarine. If it's in a liquid, it'll start to float upwards. So you start getting bends in your tunnels, and if some bits are solid and other bits are bending due to this liquid, you get kind of kinks in your tunnels and you can cause huge problems. Has this actually happened anywhere? I mean, theoretically, it's obvious this can happen, but has this actually happened to anybody? The liquefaction is a big problem. Um, So various places in Japan that have built great big um, office blocks, half on sand and half on something slightly more solid, and the sand side has just liquefied and they've just tipped over like just a great big block twisting around. Why does the vibration do this? What's the mechanism behind this? Because the sand particles are pretty rough and uneven. They, They jam together quite well i would think as soon as you start shaking it you're basically causing them to bounce off each other and they start behaving a bit like atoms in a liquid so uh, molecules in a liquid so as soon as they're not locked in place and as soon as they can move past each other a bit then they can change shape and they can flow and if you've got a violent enough earthquake with the right kind of sand or gravels then it can just liquefy and flow around the place So it isn't just sand, it could be other types of particles or other materials as well? Anything granular. It'll depend on the size of the earthquake. Also, if you've got water in there, it works far better. Something you may have done on the beach, if you stand on a kind of smooth piece of sand, which is very wet, the water helps to lubricate it. And so if you kind of jiggle your feet up and down, you can kind of sink down into the the sand, um, due to the same, what's called a fixotropic effect. Dave, thank you very much. Right, we heard about some archaeology just now. Here's a bit more archaeology. Are you related to someone from your neck of the woods from a couple of thousand years ago? Here's Hannah Critchlow with our question of the week. This week, we dig into our pasts. Hello, naked scientists. My name is Raf. 
I'm an archaeologist and I live in Belgium. And I was just wondering what the chances, percentage-wise, of me being a relative to someone living in this area in Belgium, 2000 BC. So how closely could Raz be related to a Bronze Age Belgium-based skeleton? We turn to Mark Thomas, Professor of Evolutionary Genetics at University College London. If this person had any descendants, and if his line didn't go extinct, then it's an almost 100% probability. Really? I was shocked the probability was so high. So Mark took me through the maths. As you go back through time you almost double the number of ancestors in every generation. So you've got two parents, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents, 16 great-great-grandparents, and so on. So if we're going back that number of years, do a quick calculation. We've got 4,000 years. Let us assume the average generation time is around 25 years. So that means that that's 160 generations ago. So if you theoretically doubled the number of ancestors, then according to that, anybody should have that many generations ago, 1.46 with 48 zeros, potential ancestors. Of course, in reality, that's impossible because there weren't that many people in the world then and there aren't that many people in the world now or anywhere near. But what this does tell you is that if you go back that far, then in fact... Anybody who lived at that time, you are likely to be a descendant of that person. So, to test this, if we did a DNA test, would Raz be carrying some of the Bronze Age skeleton's DNA? Apparently not. So we can have ancestors from which we have inherited no DNA. Our DNA comes in chunks, Mm -hmm. and they do swap around. So, you know, let's say I inherit a bit of DNA from, from my father. I may only pass on some of that to my one of my daughters but not another part of it because they they get scrambled up but they only get scrambled up so much essentially our whole genomes are made up of chunks and if you look back in time if you get to the point where you've got more ancestors than you've got chunks of dna then you can't have got those chunks of dna from all those ancestors so there will be ancestors from which you've inherited no dna So if 4,000 years ago someone survived long enough to successfully reproduce and their descendants also did the same, they are, in all probability, likely to be your ancestor, even though you may not share the same DNA. Mark adds that with these calculations in mind, plus historical migration, we're all also more likely than not to be descendants of Genghis Khan, the 14th century fearsome Mongolian warrior. And that's even if Genghis wasn't the prolific lover that some people speculate he was. Now, moving on to next week's question, Andrew wrote in with this. Can dogs catch and transmit human viruses? So, could you pass the flu onto your pooch? Could your dog then sneeze over your great-aunt Mildred? What do you think about that one? Hannah Critchlow, and if you'd like to get in touch with your thoughts on the answer to that one, chris at thenakedscientist.com or at Naked Scientists, or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thenakedscientists, is the place to get in touch. That's it for this week. Thank you very much for your company. The answer to our quiz, we wanted to know what was 50 kilometres long and uh, opened in 1994 for the first time. It was the Channel Tunnel between England and France.
We're back next week with a programme looking at the science of superbugs and the rising tide of antimicrobial resistance. If you have any questions on that, again, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. My thanks to Dave Ansell for joining me on the programme, to our guest this week, and to Kate Lamble for her production input. We're back at the same time next week. I hope you can join us. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the EPSRC and the Wellcome Trust. My name's Chris Smith. Thank you very much for joining us. Goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.